0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Future Imagine, a Foresight podcast dedicated to futures thinking. My name is Sandeep Das, and I lead Foresight for emerging countries for Mars Wrigley. found out about your host by now. I am absolutely in love with my own narcissistic self and my own stories. As a result, I want to speak about today's podcast topic centering obviously around me and a bit of emerging countries. When you think of emerging countries, you typically think of large parts of Asia Pacific, South America, Mexico, and Africa. But let me actually bring someone in who is not so narcissistic as I am and who actually understands this space very well. Hello,
1: Sandeep. I'm Salim Zanari, and I head up Human Intelligence for Global Emerging Markets at Mars Wrigley. I've always been fascinated by the diversity of emerging markets and the wide opportunities they present. One reality is that the contribution to the current business in many industries will be limited from emerging markets because we have big businesses in North America, in Europe that take the biggest share of the business. However, what's sure is when we look forward to the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, the incremental growth that will come will be disproportionately higher in the emerging markets. And the key reason behind that is the current low category development index the low penetration, the low consumption, and the significant acceleration in GDP, in economies, and also in the consumer spending across several markets in the emerging areas.
0: Thank you, Salim. Interestingly, the first time the term of emerging countries began to enter my vocabulary was around the mid-2000s when I was in college. My friends and I saw hope of supernormal growth, a booming middle class, integration with the global economies, and the huge role of technology, along with the hope of the promised land. To be honest, a decade later, while some of this has come true, a lot of it hasn't. The emerging countries, we suffer from corruption, wealth inequality, gender inequality, poor healthcare infrastructure, and it has borne the brutal impact of the pandemic. However, The one thing that is certain is that the next two decades will belong to the emerging countries. Not because more than half the world's population stays here. Not because it is the hotbed of innovation and entrepreneurship. Not because of the promise of supernormal growth. But simply because history says that the most prominent kingdoms resided in this part of the world. And history always repeats itself. I'm sure you've heard enough of us by now. We have a fabulous lineup of guests for today's show. Let's get on with it.
2: My name is Blas Makibar. I lead Emerging Markets for Mars Wrigley. I am Mexican, so I was born and raised on one of these beautiful, energetic emerging markets that we have. I've been with Mars for around 11 years. I've been having different roles in the corporation from unit roles, leading Mexico or Latin America, as well as leading developed markets like the United Kingdom and then a couple of global roles, and now doing this super exciting emerging markets role. I am a very curious person, always trying to discover things that surprise me through food through landscapes, through traveling. Every time that I have a chance to get on a bike and discover the different cities, the different towns in our emerging markets, that brings a lot of joy to my heart.
3: I'm Al Kimanias, the executive vice president of a company called Store Labs. So we uh, work with Mars and other major FMCG companies, and we work in technology and understanding shoppers and consumers. So we typically create virtual reality, augmented reality scenes, and then test a lot of the propositions. A lot of the work that I've been doing in my past has centered around the understanding of shoppers across the world, including Latin America, emerging markets. My spare time when that isn't happening, the little spare time that I have, because I work for an Australian company where i'm based in london so it's it's all over the world with lots of time zones is walking and i think i got myself up to about seven miles a day at the moment from uh, from a standing start so hopefully the health or wellness trend starts here
4: Well, I'm Tony Hunter and I'm a food futurist. My background is food science and technology. I've been in the food industry for 30 plus years and I really find this time to be the most exciting time to be in the food industry I have seen in all that 30 years. I ended up going to the Good Food Institute conference in 2018 in San Francisco and I came away from that convinced that the food industry was fundamentally changing and that new technologies that we saw were coming into food that we'd never seen before. The one thing I do share in common though with Alky, I consider sport anything that goes fast and makes lots of noise. If it does that, I'm a happy man.
0: Anything that makes noise is sport. Your host is definitely sport material by that. I should also tell members of this audience that your narcissistic host is getting a serious complex listening to the credentials of the guests on this show. But let's get started on that note. What is unique about emerging markets? And this is a question for everyone, and we'll start with you, Blas. When it comes to emerging countries, what is similar about us with the rest of the world? And what is different from a viewpoint of consumer behavior, channel structure, business models, demographic dividend, culinary tastes? Where are we similar and where are we different?
2: I'll start on why emerging markets is so, so important for corporations like ours, Mars Wrigley, and is that great combination of this GDP growth that is coming our way with population growth that will have our consumers in emerging markets having more money in their pockets in the future with, in the case of us, Mars Wrigley, the categories where we compete like chocolate being completely underdeveloped. In emerging markets, on average, um, consumers eat around 300 grams of chocolate per year, while in the developed world, Europe, North America, that goes all the way to seven kilograms. So it is 20 times the the per capita consumption developed world versus underdeveloped. And that combination of of that per capita growing of chocolate with money in their pockets is just, it's a, explosion of economic value that that we need to to capture. And that is why it's so, so important for corporations like ours to win in emerging markets. There are many similarities and, and many differences, right? And probably if I have to choose the similarities, regardless if you are an emerging market consumer or a developed market consumer, there are certain habits that are very similar, like the snacking habit, that habit of needing to have a small treat between meals to indulge yourself, to celebrate, to give a small gift to someone. When you are a little bit hungry and you cannot wait two three hours to your next meal and you want to have something to, to hold you while you continue to work. And all of this is very similar. If you are in New Delhi or you are in New York, you are in Mexico City, Sao Paulo, it's very, very similar. Also, in the big cities in emerging markets, You open your eyes in the middle of the city. Honestly, you don't know if you are in New York or you are in Los Angeles or you are in Mexico City because it's it's urban. It feels the energy, buildings, modern trade. Uh, You you can feel the the, the vibrancy of, of things, right? And of course, if I enter into the differences, is that the big cities do not represent emerging markets because of course we have the rural aspect of it. And that also leads into the Having less money in their pockets versus the developed consumer, and that having less money in their pockets translates into a series of big changes and differences versus the developed world. Starting with the fragmented trade, whereas you know in in the majority of our emerging markets, sixty-five percent of the consumption is still done in what we call the mom and pops or fragmented trade because they are very convenient they play a social role in that neighborhood. Sometimes they even lend a little bit of money or product to their consumers. The price points, not only snacking, but in general, the price points are at a much lower level than in the developed world, right? And all of that, of course, is a consequence of the consumer having less money in their pockets, which is one of of the biggest differences versus the developed world, people.
0: Thank you blast that was that was very very insightful and thanks for raising so many topics i'm going to come back to some of the points uh, you raised tony coming to you so i am someone who loves eating absolutely so when you take someone like me and my counterpart say in new york who also loves eating how are we similar and how are we different
4: I'm based down in Brisbane, Australia, so obviously our focus really is of nature export and outwards up into the the Asia market. And I think the biggest fundamental difference I see that's driving the future of food is the fact that something like 45 to 50% of the Asia market are Gen Zs or Millennials. And genders and millennials are what very much is going to drive the future of food in, in Asia, and their values are what's going to drive the future of food. And I think I see particularly in the alternative protein space where I look at the reason people buy things in the Asia markets versus what they buy in New York, Sunday, where they may have Animal welfare issues and sustainability. It's quite different in the Asia market. It's far more around health, looking at what they eat, ingredients lists, and all that sort of thing. And I think the other big difference is that a lot of millennials in Asia are actually earning more than their parents, whereas in the US, millennials earn 20% less at the moment at the same stage of life as their parents do. So I think we're going to see that that disjoint between the two markets, between the Asia markets as they develop. And as Blas mentioned, we've got increasing affluence in those markets. We've got the rising middle class. So I think that we're going to see a difference in those two markets. I don't expect the Asia market to simply duplicate exactly what we've seen in the developed markets.
0: That's very interesting. The point I took away is that I'm supposedly earning 20% more than my dad at the same age. I'm not sure my dad will agree, but I'll just go with that. Alki, your take on this.
3: I agree with both of those opinions. It's interesting. I was reading some background data and 86, 87% of the world's millennials and obviously Gen Z to follow live in emerging markets. So from retail operations point of view, that's great, but it's a matter of time. The move towards either e-commerce or modern train, just throw a fly in the ointment there, is going to be a matter of time in terms of how that moves across. So I think the figure for the world's Gen Z overtaking their parents completely, I've read somewhere was around 2031, when it'll be a definitive thing, where you know that next generation will come along. And what that means today is that whether it's a Kirano, uh, whether it's a Bodega, whatever it might be that we're trying to service, when we get out of those Urban areas where we know the youth is kind of pooling. What I've seen talking to a lot of FMCG companies is that there are some dynamics which are very specific. And those dynamics are the fact that in those countries, you're talking about the management of a large fulfillment and sales force, right? A one to one. You're talking about a lack of compliance in terms of being able to monitor that and be able to see how your brand is particularly displayed. You're talking about, I think, the fact that the types of SKUs and the fulfillment, you know, rather than multi packs and things that would suit. A big uh, modern trade have to necessarily be single skews. Sometimes, you know, the pricing that Blas spoke about is very important. And th- the final thing is, I'm really curious, and I'm sure we'll talk about it on what effect the ravage of, of COVID has had on these countries, which is disproportionate and continuing, and whether that will drive people back into a more insular, local view in terms of you know everything from being wary on hygiene and wanting to, to know the local shopkeeper, uh, right through to the dynamics of multinationals, really taking it as an opportunity and investing in those markets and, and really kind of changing the cycle.
0: That's very interesting. And I want to steer the conversation into existing channels, fragmented, as blast called it, and the futuristic channels, which are e-com. And Blas, we'll, I'll, I'll come to you on your view in this. If you see the popular press in our part of the world, a topic that gets a lot of coverage is e or digital com, as we call it. And as of today, for most countries in emerging markets, e-com is less than 10% of total business, uh, except China. Maybe China is an outlier. What is your take on this channel? Do you believe the e channel can become significant in the next decade? Or do you think at some point this is a bit of unnecessary hype? To all the leaders who are listening to this podcast, there's always this question that they have in mind. Is the effort and the media coverage in the e channel worth it?
2: Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very good question. And probably if you ask some of our leaders this question five, 10 years ago, there was not a real belief that e-commerce could become something big, right? And there was this skepticism around it. But, but what I can tell you for our leaders, of course, including myself, is that e-commerce is going to be probably the number one source of growth in the next 15 years. And I think COVID has accelerated this journey because many consumers in emerging markets, they were forced, let's say, to use, to learn about e-commerce because they were skeptical also. And they they noticed that it is great, convenient, that that is reliable, that they could order food, product, whatever they wanted to their house, etc. And, and it worked and they loved it. For me, the most important question is that E-commerce is not an umbrella statement, right? It is not just ordering on Amazon or on these food delivery companies like Deliveroo in London or Uber Eats, etc. It's going to be much more complex than that. Let me give you one type of complexity. I talked about the millions of mom and pops that we have in emerging markets. I think one of their crucial journeys is for them to digitalize so that they will start embracing the digital era so that they will, in pragmatic terms, they will receive direct orders digitally from their clients on that neighborhood, and they will fulfill those orders from that mom and pop on that neighborhood, right? So that is another angle of e-commerce. It's not only the Walmarts and the Carrefour's and the Amazons of this world. It will permeate Across all of that, you have also the dark kitchens that these restaurants that do not have a name and they will serve uh, consumers and and products like ours, our chocolate, our gum, they also will have a source of growth in in those dark kitchens. So the challenge is, is to really embrace this as a new business model, to really embrace this with the complexity that it brings to the table and not trying to have a a cookie-cutter approach, an umbrella approach of something that is much more complex than that. But the combination of these different angles definitely will be the number one source of growth for companies like ours. And I I think in terms of numbers, it will go north of 20% of our revenue very, very, very quickly, Sandip.
0: Thank you, Blas. And I just want to call out a few points Blas makes, which are very, very interesting. For members of this audience, he's obviously taking up on that it's greater than 20%. That's likely to be greater than 20% in course of time. Also, e is not just Amazon or Flipkart. He's also saying e is e as we understand. e is organized trade as we understand. And most importantly, e is also unorganized trade as we understand. The reason this statement becomes so important, and Alki, I want to pick your brains on this is because unorganized trade or fragmented trade or traditional trade is nearly between 60 to 70% of the region that we operate in. And Alki, I wanna come to you in terms of how you see this channel evolving. Post COVID, because of digitization, because of changes in social structure, how do you see this channel evolving? Do you think it will go the way Alibaba took it in China? Or do you think there are learnings we have from how the convenience market has evolved in the developed world?
3: That's a really good question. Now, the Alibaba example is one that everybody always cites, and I think it's interesting, but I think what you have with Alibaba in that particular instance, in that particular market at that particular time, is a burgeoning news, but also the social, the political climate to be able to push that, not least because of the rollout of Wi-Fi, the rollout of a lot of technology, the emergence of telephone over laptops, and so on and so forth. So that absolutely is a great model. What's interesting, and going back to Blas's to comment, is that if you can't beat them, join them. And I, I read that Amazon have just done deals with 50,000 of the Indian kirana stores to do exactly what Blas was saying so i think whether they're doing it themselves and and really looking at the back end and and looking at the fulfillment or whether it's larger companies trying to understand that it's those local hubs that are distributing it is definitely growing the fact that you know the west is really catching up with emerging markets in the sense that we're going for top up trips right now right the idea of of the 1950s you know us house wife, husband, family, you know, driving out the middle of nowhere to a large store has progressively, as we become more urban across the world, has come back to where emerging markets always were and will continue to be. So there is a real opportunity, I think, to develop that proposition within those stores, and specifically for Mars and, and other manufacturers to really look at what that assortment is, how to fulfill the best answer within those stores. But the challenge remains, I think, that with such a large, diverse set of, of stores, outside of e-commerce, of course, is how do you get your brand across? How do you get promotional campaigns? How do you make sure that your brand isn't just randomly sort of stuck on a shelf somewhere and, and will have the prominence it deserves and needs?
0: That's very interesting, Alki. And I'm going to be a jerk of a host and make you take a stand today. If you see, mm-hmm. traditional trade is more than sixty percent of our business by and large across our part of the world. Mm-hmm. Say we have this podcast episode in 2031, ten years down the line. What's your sense of how much that number will be?
3: This is a finger in the air. I'd be very surprised if it was under forty-five percent.
0: That's a brave, brave prediction. If you analyze the starting remarks our incredible guests made, you will notice a lot of reference to health and wellness. And if you look at the newspapers in our part of the world, this topic has been getting phenomenal traction and phenomenal coverage. Honestly, this topic is not new, but what the pandemic has done has ensured that the gamut of this conversation has expanded significantly, incorporating elements of physical health, mental health, social circles, food-consumed, and graceful ageing. I particularly resonate with graceful ageing a lot. I'm in my mid-30s now, and it is with great difficulty I've finally accepted that I can't dress up like a college student anymore. Tony, let me come to you and you deal with the future of food. Do you think the consumer in emerging countries is actually becoming more conscious about health and wellness when they choose their food? whether it's eating plant-based meat or whether it's eating low-oil snacks? Or do you think there is an inherent contradiction with consumers that they will say something else and they will do the exact opposite? For instance, I am extremely health-conscious, but the first thing I will do after this podcast is to order deep-fried food. (laughs)
4: I think that's a good question, Sandeep. As you say, what consumers say they will do and what they actually do sometimes end up being different things. But I do think, um, as we were talking about before, what's driving the longer-term future of food are our Gen Zs and our millennials. And just to recap on that, there are 1.1 billion of them in Asia, five times the amount in the US and Europe combined. So their values are what's going to drive what goes on. And they definitely have significant concerns about health. And that's one of the big drives of what they're looking for in their food. I've seen a few surveys that they're trying to eat less meat, pay attention to food labels, eat foods which are natural ingredients, and they watch closely what they eat. So they've definitely got a concern about their health. And I think we've got to be careful in seeing ourselves as the food police. If there is no pleasure in eating, then what's the point? Let's just get, uh, you know, soil and green or whatever and uh, just spoon it into our mouths. And what I'm seeing longer term is actually a convergence of the food industry and the health industry because we're seeing people wanting to eat for their health and I say, I'm sorry to say Blas, there will be no food industry in 2050. Why? Because if people are eating for their health, what industry are food companies in? They're in the health industry. So I say to people, there'll be no food industry in 2050. I'm very sorry to tell you that. But I think that's the thing. We're going to see that convergence of the two. And if you want to look at some of the, the cutting edge things, this is one that I love, is they've recently released a program called Harvey and Harveta. And they are digital virtual twins of our metabolism, male and female. They model 80,000 biochemical reactions, 26 organs, six blood types, and your microbiome to predict the effect of food and other things on our bodies. And when you combine that with all the things that we're seeing with people getting their gene sequences done, their microbiome done, you combine all these things together and then you look at other technologies which are growing exponentially like AI and quantum computing, I'm saying 20, 30 years' time, we'll have a quantum AI probably tattooed on the back of our hand, which will be able to crunch all the numbers of everything using our digital uh, virtual twin and tell us what that food's going to have, and that Tony, if you ate a bit too much of that uh, lovely cheesecake at lunch, and uh, that beautiful uh, what was it uh, had for dinner um, apple and um, blackberry crumble, that maybe you shouldn't eat quite so much fat tomorrow.
0: Thank you, Tony, for that. I'm just picturizing the future. Imagine when I'm sitting with deep fried potatoes in front of me and there's a chip that's telling me each stick is worth 50 calories and I have that. And the next stick, if you have, you will live one year lesser. Oh, my God, that that, that sounds absolutely terrible. But last, let me come to you and expand this view to the view of a corporate. So how do you think leading companies in our part of the world can drive this increasing focus in health and wellness, especially when it comes to the company's employees or company's associates. From your personal experience, what typically works as a corporate intervention and what is difficult about this journey?
2: This is very, very relevant and very important uh, because one of the several trends that have accelerated because of COVID, you have digitalization, you have, of course, in-home rituals, you have sustainability. But Clearly, healthy lives is, is one of, of those few that have just completely accelerated. And Tony is completely correct that this is not only about physical health, right? It's also about mental health. And, and more and more, that balance is, is getting right. Uh, so it's, it's not only the, the physical ob- obesity, sugar, diabetes, which, of course, is important, but it's also about, it's as important as, as mental health. So we have to approach this from a holistic Angle, right? We in Mars really, Wrigley, we are leaders of the industry, and as a consequence, we have responsibility to, in a way, lead, influence the way on this balanced approach of life, right, of diet, of what I eat, what I exercise, and all of that. Because it's about balance, as also Tony says. And one element of that is setting the example with our more than 100,000 associates. And their families. So if I talk about it and what do we do with our associates, uh, we call associates our, our employees. So they are associates because we see them as, as partners rather than employees. The first one I'll start is flexibility. It's about providing flexibility on their work schedules so that they can spend time on those mental, physical things for, for them. It's about not, they don't need to have to go to work every day and having the flexibility to stay at home two out of the five working days. And, and by doing that, they can go to the gym or they can go to the yoga lessons or they can do whatever they want with much more flexibility. And that is going to be front and center in the future. The second one is at the work space to provide also to motivate these healthier lifestyles, trying to have access to gymnasiums trying to have access to yoga places, to places of mindfulness within the the workspaces, on top of our great snacking products, because I truly believe that our products have space in anyone's diet with moderation, of course, but on top of our chocolates, M&Ms or sneakers or our gum, also we are providing our associates with vegetables and fruit for, for them to snack so that they can be balanced in the way they are also doing their snacking. Finally, is how do we partner with local governments to also motivate the the healthy lifestyles? And and in many different countries where Mars operates, we have partnered with governments for the associate to receive, let's say, a little bit of subsidy for them to get into a formal gym, for them to buy a bicycle, for them to, to be able to have a discount on sport equipment etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think then the combination of flexible working schedules with us really showcasing the balanced way of snacking and finally partnering with external stakeholders like governments to really help and, and partially subsidize in a way these physical and, and mental activities the combination of those three things we believe, can, can help our associates embark on that very important, healthier lifestyle, Sandeep.
0: Thanks, Blas. And I will talk from my personal experience. I have worked for five companies in my career, and I think Mars Wrigley absolutely means every word what Blas is saying. Every word that he's saying actually gets translated into real life, and it takes the physical and mental health of its associates very, very seriously. So thank you for that, Blas, and I hope we keep going on this journey. When we talk about emerging countries, we have to speak of youth, the young people. And I like to think I'm a part of the youth club, although my birth certificate refuses to agree to it. Nearly half the population in our part of the world has the age of 30 years. This is a source of enormous advantage. I'm not going to state the obvious, but the Gen Z consumer is aspirational. The Gen Z consumer is conscious about the economy. She's more aware. She has more opportunities and much, much more. I'm going to be a jerk, which I'm really good at, and ask each of you the following question. Tell us one thing about the youth in our part of the world which you admire and one thing about the youth which you absolutely detest. If you ever want to rant about your nephew or your kids, this is the platform to do it. So Blas, I will put you on the spot first.
2: What I love, admire, is this sense of purpose, this sense of trying to embark on a holistic life, that life goes way beyond work, right, and has its different elements to make it a rich, happy, Life And I see this clearly in that generation. And probably I didn't see that with myself when I was younger. We were probably too work-driven, not really understanding the importance of the different aspects of life, having a clear purpose, for example, to give back to community, to give back to the world. And I am seeing with my own children and, and with younger associates that are working, that they really mean it. And it's serious, it's credible, it is honest, that interest of having a purpose of giving back. And I have a lot of admiration towards that. That is leading, for example, to many of of them not wanting to work for a corporation. And probably 30 years ago, 20 years ago, when I started my career, everyone that I knew died to work for a big corporation, right? And now it's not the case. And, And why? Because again, They they have clarity on their purpose, they have clarity on what they want to do with their lives and that goes beyond work. The thing that I hate the most is probably the technology has connected us so much, but at the same time it has kept us apart so much. And I've seen the overuse of phones and overuse of tablets and the overuse of chatting and at the expense of those very valuable physical connections that again probably I used to have when I was younger, right? In the way that we played, in the way that I interacted with my friends, in the way that I interacted with my parents, was was more physical, right? And I, I think that the, the world, the youth, will start to seek more of, of these physical connections that are closer, that are more human, versus the all of in being being digital
0: Absolutely. And thank you, Blas. Those, those are very noble words. Alki, let's come to you and let me, let me flip the question. What is the one thing you hate? We will start with that. And then what is the one thing you like?
3: <laughs> the third parent. That, that's what I hate. There's me, there's their mum, and then there's Google. As much as I never understood my parents saying it's because I said so, we really can't say that anymore because there'll be five articles to disprove everything you've ever said. So that's also the flip side, what I love about it, which is that they are far, far, far more savvy than, than we ever were, I think, at that age, I think. But, you know, there, there is a philosophical view, isn't there? Or, or a bit of a, a strange sort of, um, understanding these with these net natives that, imagine if somebody came from space and said, you know what, tomorrow morning, I'm gonna give you every question ever asked in the world and every answer that can ever come from it, I'm gonna put it in the palm of your hand. Go away and do something with it. It's an amazing power to have, but like Spider-Man, right? With with much power comes much responsibility. And and I think the thing that I always wonder is, have we caught up with the filters to be able to put all of that data into some kind of sense and to be able to to see what's good and what's bad?
0: One of the major conversations we're all having in the Western world is about sustainability, especially after the pandemic and the extreme weather events we're seeing in large parts of the world. In our part of the world, there is always this perennial question mark if consumers really care about sustainability do they care because it's a nice thing to say or do they genuinely care about it and show it in their behavior when they make a purchase so i saw your linkedin post and you recently hosted a webinar on sustainability in emerging countries uh, what's your take blast that do you think consumers really care about sustainability or is it just a cool thing to say
2: a couple of minutes ago i was talking about the uh these global trends that are really accelerating behind behind covid right and one of those is definitely sustainability if you asked me this question five ten years ago probably my answer would have been different and it would have been more of a yeah corporations wants to do it just to save face or just to but the consumer is not really caring maybe some exceptions here and there in some markets but And now I do my travels across the world and I talk to consumers and we go back to the Gen Zs and the the young population. I really see how they care about the planet, how they care about their communities where they live, how they care about sustainability and, and how they are rewarding or penalizing the companies, the products, the brands that do it or don't do it. And, and, I, and this is just the beginning uh, of, of something that I think in the next 10, 15 years will only become even more evident and, and more important, right? And I, I clearly, I, I, I truly believe that corporations like ours really embarking on a credible, honest, candid sustainability agenda that is not parallel to your business, that is not about writing a cheque or being a charity, but rather embracing sustainability as how we do business will be front and center of a company that is successful. And on the contrary, companies that don't do it in a credible, honest way, they will not succeed. The trick is that, is, is how you bring sustainability, how you do business, and not as a parallel process, by finding the sweet spot of mutuality, that by by giving, you receive. As you know, we, we are the, the global chocolate leader. We are one of the largest buyers of cocoa in the world. Cote d'Ivoire is the n- number one producer of cocoa in the world. But the cocoa uh, farming is very fragmented. There are thousands and thousands of farmers that do that, right? And and they they require knowledge. They require capital. They require know-how to succeed, to to have the right yields of cocoa, to make money, to provide for their families, and as a consequence, wanting to continue to, to, to farm cocoa. And we are investing millions of dollars on, on that, to provide again, knowledge, technology, so that they succeed and they they can make money out of it and they can provide to their families, send their kids to school, etc. Because by doing that, The cocoa farmer will want to stay farming cocoa. And if that happens, there will be enough cocoa to produce chocolate. So that is the sweet spot of it's not about writing a check of charity just for doing that, it's doing it because we know it will have a tangible positive effect. But that positive effect will return also to Mars, and Mars will succeed. And by Mars being more successful, we can help more either in the cocoa angle or in any other angle and is and finding all of that through carbon footprint to our w- water usage to the use of our ingredients to the way we engage with our consumers is finding that mutuality angle that will allow us to really embed sustainability on how do we business instead of embracing sustainability as a parallel universe of checks that we need to write.
0: Thank you Blas and those are extremely inspiring words. I should say As an employee or as an associate, I'm extremely proud of this company. They do a lot and they mean every word of what they are saying. On that note, I'm moving to the last question I have scheduled for this conversation. What are some of the big implications for FMCG companies as they look to succeed in emerging markets over the next decade? One opportunity and one risk.
4: key thing in these emerging markets in Asia is localization. Trying to take a product that sells well in London, New York or Paris is not going to necessarily sell well in Bangkok, Shenzhen, Jakarta and that really looking at how these products fit into people's lifestyles, into their day parts, and how it works for those people in their culture and where they are, that is going to be the key to being successful in these emerging markets.
3: I think the opportunity really, based on the fact that there is that intimate relationship with local retailers, is perhaps start to take a bit of a view of some of the work that Mars and others are doing in the West, in terms of looking at more experiential, more service-led offers. I think that is what's going to work. I think being able to take the localization that Tony's talking about, but somehow connect with those local shoppers and make it much more personal to them, as well as perhaps diametrically also looking at some technology that might help together would be a great Great proposition
2: as emerging market population evolves the per capita consumption of the categories where we compete will just explode the name of the game is increasing our penetration by having the right portfolio the right products at the right price point and available in the stores where they shop emerging markets by definition they are volatile they are risky it will require a long-term view of things to really build a business, not for the next five years, but rather to build a business for the next generation and having the patience, doling down so that when the economy gets back on track, you are in a better position. And that will be my view.
0: That unfortunately leads to the end of a fabulous conversation. As your lovely host of this podcast, here are my three key takeaways. Point number one. The future of emerging countries is filled with contradictions. A combination of old world channels and the new world charm. A promise of supreme growth but massive corporate debt. Emerging markets are going to be complex. And only one of the many future pathways is a relentless growth engine. Point number two. Most people believe that emerging markets will follow the Western world across the maturity curve. As China has shown, with technology, they may create their own curve. Point number three, there is a plethora of opportunity, but the definition of value is very, very different. As an FMCG player, we all need to understand this very, very clearly. The one mistake none of us should make is to paint the entire region with one brush. What sells in London does not sell in Mumbai. And what sells in Mumbai does not sell in Manila. With that, we bid adieu to this episode. Look forward to hosting you on another spectacular one. Until then, I am Sandeep. Stay curious.
4: If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate
1: it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjares, with editing and sound design by Matha DeLeon.